The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. Open your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. Have you ever gone swimming? The water was cold and you had two choices. You just sort of dip your toes in and just kind of wade in slowly or you just jump off the diving board and get it over with. That's sort of what we're doing today as we jump back in 1 Peter. We're faced with some very tough verses. Well, we might as well just jump in. And if you don't believe me about the tough nature of this passage, let me share with you what a few commentaries have to say about it. One man says, this paragraph is notoriously obscure and difficult to interpret. Another one says, this passage proves to be one of the most difficult texts in the New Testament to translate and interpret. And one even noted that when Peter wrote this section of his letter, he had no idea that it would be classified as one of the most difficult portions of the New Testament. And that's sort of funny to me because... You may remember that in Peter's second letter, he makes this comment about how Paul writes things that are tough to understand. You know, well, Peter, sometimes you, you're right in the same boat. Sometimes your things aren't always that simple either. And so parts of our passage this morning are admittedly difficult, and I'm sure that I won't answer all your questions about this, and we may walk away with different views about, about parts of these passages. And listen, that's okay, because nothing in the tough section that we'll deal with should be called or labeled as what we might say a test of fellowship. There's no fundamental belief that hangs in the balance of the difficult portion. When I finish preaching this sermon, you will still believe that God is the creator, that man is sinful, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on our behalf, who rose again to give us life, and that if we repent and believe in him, we will have eternal life. None of that will change. You'll still believe the Bible is the very word of God, that the church is a local assembly, that baptism and the Lord's Supper are pictorial ordinances, and other things. Those are truths we can be emphatic about. We can be firm on those things. Parts of this section are different and they're difficult. But since it's been a couple weeks since we've been in 1 Peter, let me remind you of the context because it's going to be important in the overall message of what Peter's saying here at the end of the chapter. Remember that Peter's audience was made up of first century Christians who had been scattered. And these believers were suffering persecution because of their faith in Christ. And yet Peter has urged them multiple times not to fight back. Do not retaliate when you suffer unjustly. And although that goes against every fiber of our human nature, the godly response to undeserved suffering is to patiently endure it and entrust everything else to the Father. While this world would fail to see any value in that, and this world might even despise someone who acted like that, because why is that person not sticking up for themselves? Why are they not standing up? P 
Peter taught in chapter 2 that it's a gracious thing with God if you do that. Suffering unjustly and enduring it patiently is a gracious thing with God. In fact, Peter told us in chapter 2, it's exactly what Christ did. It's exactly how Jesus Christ responded to his own unjust sufferings. And we better be thankful he did, right? Or we wouldn't have a Savior. His sufferings led to our life. So ironically, suffering isn't all bad. In fact, if you look back at verse 14 of chapter 3, Peter said that if you suffer for righteousness, you're blessed. Happy. There's blessedness that comes from that. Not just suffering in general, not suffering if you've done something wrong. There's no reward in suffering for doing wrong. But if you suffer for righteousness' sake and you patiently endured and trust things to God, there's a blessing for that. There's a reward for that. And so, even when people speak evil against you, they persecute you, and you suffer simply for doing what's right, simply for following Christ, Peter has taught this group and us, by extension, to just keep on living right, keep on fearing God, keep on patiently enduring just like your Lord and Savior did. And that leads us into the last part of this chapter. While it does contain some very difficult verses, I don't want us to lose the forest, you know, because of the trees. Ultimately, Peter wrote these verses at the end of chapter 3 as an encouragement and a reminder that suffering is not the final word for a believer, just as suffering was not the final word for Christ. His suffering paved the way for his glorious resurrection and ultimate triumph over all evil. And that's a victory that we share in, no matter what happens in this life. So look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 17 through 22. For it is better if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also has suffered for sins, uh, hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. In verse 17, we won't spend a lot of time there because Peter has already mentioned the, uh, the fact that it's better to suffer for doing good than doing evil. We've talked about that a little bit, but I want to point out uh, briefly a, a comforting phrase in verse 17 before we move on, and that's that phrase, if the will of God be so. A few sermons ago, I mentioned that under normal circumstances, 
people don't suffer for doing good. That's not normally how things work, but we know persecution is not only possible, but it was indeed happening to those people. And so Peter assures them that their suffering didn't fall outside of God's control, nor did it mean they were outside of God's will. And it should be comforting and encouraging to know that nothing we ever face in life happens because it snuck past our God or because it overpowered our God. No pain, no suffering, no heartache ever happens because God just wasn't strong enough to stop it. Never. Suffering can only go as far as God allows. If you remember the story of Job, we saw that all too well in his story. Satan, in all of his evil, could not go one step further than God allowed. And yet, even in Job's story, God had Job's ultimate good at stake. Because by the end of the story, Job had learned more of God's sovereignty than he knew in the first place. He trusted God in a deeper way than he did when he started. And if you remember Job's story, he was called the most righteous man on earth. And yet God still used his sufferings to grow him. And so even if unjust persecution comes, it's not because our God couldn't stop it. But his will and his design is still for our good to use that to promote something even better in our lives. In fact, that's exactly what he did in verse 18 with the sufferings of Jesus. Jesus' own sufferings didn't mean that, that God wasn't in control. Jesus' own sufferings sure didn't mean that he was outside of God's will. But rather, God used those sufferings for a greater good. Verse 18 here is essentially the gospel in a nutshell. And as I was reading and studying it more this week, I thought, I don't know why this verse isn't as famous as John 3.16. This is a beautiful verse that summarizes the gospel. For Christ also hath, suffered, uh, hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. First notice in this verse, this small word, once. Jesus suffered, he died once. This emphasizes the once and for all, never to be repeated power of Christ's suffering and death. In fact, the, the Greek word that's used here has sort of become, even in, depending on what books you read, sort of this technical jargon word for literature when an author only uses a word one time in his work or maybe in a book. It's, it, this word is used to describe. That's just used once. And that's how Peter describes Christ's suffering, just once. And it really makes us think back to the law and it contrasts with all the sacrifices that the Old Testament priests had to make daily and monthly and yearly. Constantly offering the, these offerings and sacrifices and it was a continual reminder of the guilt of sin. 
because the blood of bulls and goats can't wash away sins. But they did foreshadow who could. They pointed to the perfect sacrifice who would one day come, whose perfect, innocent, righteous blood could wash away sin. And we know that lamb is Jesus Christ. And he only needed to suffer and die one time because he was the perfect sacrifice. Peter says here in verse 18, the just or the righteous for the unjust or the unrighteous. Word for could even mean on behalf of. Jesus Christ was truly righteous. And therefore, anything he suffered was not his fault. He didn't deserve it. It wasn't for his own sin or shortcoming. Peter already said in chapter 2, verse 22, that Christ did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. I think I made the point during one of those sermons that this coming from a man who spent more time with Jesus than just about any other human being during the, the years of his ministry, he knew Jesus intimately, and yet he could positively say, this man was righteous. Peter never witnessed sin in the life of Christ because it wasn't there to witness. He didn't deserve one drop of suffering, and yet he willingly took your place. He stepped in as your substitute for an incredible purpose. Notice halfway through the verse that he might bring us to God. That's awesome. Just stop and let that sink in for a minute. That he might bring us to God. The need for mankind to be restored to God has been around since the Garden of Eden and the fall of man. Sin separates us from our holy creator. When Adam and Eve sinned, they no longer walked in fellowship with God in the garden. But do you remember what they did? They hid themselves. Sin created an impassable gulf between God and man. But people still knew the need was there. It didn't erase our need for God. Just we couldn't get to Him. People knew something was missing in their lives, and they still do. That's why there are so many different religions in this world. Because people are searching for a way to get back to God. But listen, the only way to be brought to God is if Jesus Christ escorts you. He's the only mediator between God and men. He's the only bridge over the impassable gulf of sin. What did Jesus himself say in John 14? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He wasn't lying when he said that. If there were other ways men could be brought to God, then why in the world would Jesus Christ be called upon to suffer and die the way he did? That's a slap in the face to Jesus Christ. 
to say that any other person, any other religion can bring you to God. Thank the Lord that the only perfect and righteous substitute that exists in the universe was willing to be that perfect and righteous substitute. Peter mentions that next. He mentions his death at the end of the verse, right? When he says in the end of verse 18 that to bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, and then he says, but quickened by the Spirit. Suffering and death was not the final word, was it? He was quickened by the Spirit or quickened in spirit. See, Brother Matt, these are easy verses. Yeah. It's easy to preach verse 17 and 18, right? But actually at the very end of verse 18 is where all the disagreements start. Through about verse 21. There's disagreements about what Peter means when he says quickened by the Spirit. Um, I see this as a reference to Christ's resurrection. It just seems to fit the flow of what Peter's saying, that Christ came to bring us to God. He, was, he, was, uh, he died in the flesh. He raised in the Spirit or quickened by the Spirit. Seems to fit that flow. The word quickened is used often in resurrection context or life-giving context. So it, it seems to fit. And without the resurrection, the suffering and death do not matter. Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians. One author says the contrast is between Christ's death as a real man here on earth and his risen life as the glorified Lord. That makes sense to me. There's, again, there's disagreement. But then there's even more when we get to verse 19 through 21. Um, there's three main views about what Peter meant and what he referred to in verse 19 through, through 20 and, and even 21 about uh, Christ preaching to these spirits in prison uh, who were disobedient during Noah's day. And what I'm going to do is sort of give you the three main views about this. Um, do my best to summarize them and present the overall, overall thoughts of the views without getting too bogged down in specifics and technicalities and things because uh, one author says the literature on this problem is voluminous. Okay, You can knock yourself out studying these verses and, and I, if you have questions, ask me afterwards. I'd love to talk about it, but I don't want us to lose the forest. right? So there's one view that believe that the spirits in prison in verse 19 were people who lived during Noah's day who at some point believed God and were what we would call saved. However, they lived disobediently, they lived wickedly, and they refused to heed or follow Noah's message. And so they died in the flood with the rest of humanity. And as Old Testament people died, they went to a place called Hades, or Sheol, not hell. But this was the place, uh, in the Hebrew, they called it the place of departed spirits. And these Old Testament believers were in a place of comfort, awaiting Christ's completed work before being ushered into heaven. And this view believes that during that interim period between Christ's death and resurrection, that, that he preached to those people that they would soon be freed and enter the presence of God. So that's one view. Um, some questions and concerns with this view. If the end of verse 18 is talking about the resurrection, then it seems odd that Peter inserts the three-day interim period here in verse 19. It's also, you have to question with the way the world is described in Genesis. Uh, you definitely can't prove there were other saved people here on the earth. 
during, uh, during the flood. Um, and also, you're going to have to deal with why Peter refers to this place of comfort as a prison. The, and, and maybe some more, but those are just some questions with, with that view. And I'm going to give you questions with all these views, okay? That's one idea. Another idea is that these spirits in prison also still refers to people who were alive during Noah's day, but who were unbelievers. And this view states that Christ indeed preached to these people during Noah's day in spirit through Noah and, and through Noah's truth and through Noah's messages that he brought. But ultimately, these people rejected that message and they perished in the flood. And now they are indeed in prison, so to speak, because they rejected God's truth and, and they were judged. In, in my humble opinion, I think this view is more attractive than the first one. It leaves me with a few less questions, but there's still questions you have to deal with with, with this view as well. Um, one is that it may not really deal with the word went in verse 19. It, why would Peter use a word went if this was just something simply done in the spirit? That, that's a question you have to deal with with this view. And another question with both of these first views is that we have to wonder why Peter would use the word spirits here to describe people. Normally, Peter uses the word souls to describe the whole of a human. And he does that in verse 20, even in this context, when he says at the, at the end of verse 20, eight souls were saved by water. And he's just using that word to describe a human. Uh, so you sort of have to deal with that, that as well. And then there's one other major view that, that you'll find if you study this, and that's that the spirits in prison do not refer to people, but refer to uh, fallen angels, angels who rebelled uh, against, against God and who have been bound since the days of Noah for their disobedience and their rebellion. And so this view states that after Christ's resurrection, he went to where these angels were are chained awaiting judgment, and he announced to these evil spirits his victory over all evil. In 2 Peter, uh, Peter mentions sinful angels who are bound in chains awaiting final judgment. Uh, and in verse 22 of our text this morning, he mentions specifically angelic powers, spiritual authorities uh, being subjected to Christ. So there's some, there's some contextual support for this idea here for sure as well. Just to be really honest, as I studied this, I was sort of surprised at, at the appeal of the third view. Uh, I thought that I would reject that one. I knew it was out here, you know, and I thought, no. Um, but it had a little more traction than I, than I thought it might going in. I don't know if I'm ready to plant my flag on, on any, any of them. Uh, I mentioned, you know, these are not the, the test of fellowship type things. Some of the questions and concerns with the third view. Why bring up Noah and the flood that destroyed humanity if verse 19 is referring to evil spirits? And also, a lot of people who espouse to this view hold other views about angelic beings and their behavior that I'm at best uncomfortable with and um, not quite sure about some of the things they believe about, about fallen angels. And so it just, um, we don't have to get into all that right now. Those are your three main views. I even read some authors who mix and match, okay? So hey, just about 
every single word or phrase from the end of verse 18 through verse 21 is debated in some form or fashion. And again, I, I have, there's questions with all, all three of these major views, um, and we may land on different areas in some of these things. But, I, but for us and what we know about the whole of the Bible and the whole of the New Testament, once we get to Noah's deliverance in, chapter, uh, in the end of verse 20, and once we uh, see the baptismal reference in verse 21, we aren't going to have any more differences, I don't feel like. We're not going to have any more issues because we can lock this in pretty good with what we know uh, throughout the Bible and throughout the New Testament. The way this relates also to the context is going to be fascinating. So at the end of verse 20, Peter mentions that Noah and his family, those eight people, were saved by water. He's not talking about spiritual salvation there. But the fact that they were delivered from the flood. He's just simply saying they didn't perish like the rest of humanity. They were rescued from that judgment. But the wording's a little surprising, isn't it? Wouldn't we expect Peter to say that they were saved by the ark? Or that they were saved through the ark rather than by or through water? How did the water save them? I thought the water brought the judgment. Say, well, it's the same water that brought the judgment upon the disobedient and wicked people that also set Noah apart from that generation because as the flood waters rose, what rose with it? The ark. And so Noah and his family were separated, by that, uh, separated from that wicked generation by the water. There was a, a marked distinction and separation because of that water. And so mentioning the water then allows Peter to transition into verse 21 and talk about baptism or immersion. But somehow Noah's historical account corresponds to baptism. Peter uses the phrase in verse 21, the like figure. You may have a translation that, say, that says symbolizes or corresponds to or prefigures or something like that. And those are all good, good translations. Say, so what is the connection? What is the, what is the correspondence there? Just as the water in Noah's day separated him from the disobedient generation in which he lived. Baptism separates a believer from this disobedient world today. It does not save you spiritually. Noah was spiritually saved long before he built the ark. Long before any floodwaters rained down or erupted up. Baptism does not spiritually cleanse you. It does not offer any forgiveness of sins. And sadly, some people think that's what Peter was saying, even though he was careful to make sure that nobody misunderstood. Notice he specifically says in verse 21, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. And yet there's disagreement about what he says. Baptism cannot wash your filth away. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that. 
There's nothing magical that happens during, uh, during and in the waters of baptism. And we know from the rest of the New Testament, right, that baptism is, is also a symbol of something else, isn't it? And at the end of verse 21, notice what Peter says. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Immersing a believer in water and raising them up does not save them. But it symbolizes and pictures what did. The fact that they placed their faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And without the gospel, baptism makes no sense. So it doesn't save you. It pictures what's already happened spiritually by faith in your heart. But it does show that you're separated from this world because it identifies you with Christ. Sometimes we even say, we're following the Lord in baptism. Because you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you will not face the judgment of God like this world. And so baptism is a meaningful and an important step in demonstrating that and, in, and explaining that and proclaiming that separation. In one of Peter's own sermons in Acts chapter 2, he said something sort of similar, sort of parallels this. He said, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Well, those people in Acts chapter 2 didn't spiritually save themselves. Like, we can't do that. Being baptized didn't spiritually save them. But it did separate them from the crooked generation they lived in. It did show this marked distinction that these people have pledged to live for Christ. That they identify with Him as opposed to the disobedient, wicked people that surround them. But how does any of that fit the context here in 1 Peter? Why in the world did Peter bring up baptism all of a sudden? Because in the first century, when you were baptized... That was a very public display. It was done in streams, in rivers, in open bodies of water like that for anyone and everyone to see. They didn't have baptistries or even church buildings for that matter. And so when you were baptized, it marked you publicly as one of those Christians. It set you apart. And that might mean you'd be persecuted. Just like these believers. That might mean suffering. But better to suffer for doing good than suffer for doing evil. Better to suffer because I've obeyed God than experience judgment because I disobeyed God. So even if this world speaks evil against you or persecutes you, you have a good conscience toward God. You know that you've trusted in Him. You know that you've identified with Christ, that you've followed Him, that you've obeyed Him, that you are His no matter what. Nothing can change that. 
Not even the strongest spiritual powers that exist in the universe. And so that's how Peter ends this section in verse 22 by highlighting the victory that Jesus has over all spiritual powers. He says in verse 22, Who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Having finished the work that led to our redemption, Jesus Christ ascended back into heaven and he sat down at the most prominent place and the most powerful position in the universe at the Father's right hand. And we see in this verse the sheer vastness of Christ's dominion and of his victory. Angels, authorities, and powers clearly pointing to spiritual beings and, and authorities. Uh, powers that we're even unaware of. We, we are so unaware of spiritual warfare that goes on. We know enough to know it's there. I don't know how much more I want to know about it. God revealed just the perfect amount to us in his word. And yet I can rest and trust and be confident that no spiritual power is outside of the influence and authority of Jesus Christ. Not one. In fact, the word subjected here just so happens to be the same word we saw several times throughout the letter that talked about submission. Being under authority. No power in this universe escapes the dominion of Christ. He holds all authority and one day he will exercise his authority in such a completely dominant way that he will put an end to evil, an end to death, and an end to suffering. Say, so how do I know that? How can I be confident in that? Because it's already been demonstrated in his own life. His sufferings were not the end. He was resurrected. And he ascended back to the Father's right hand. And so just as suffering is not the final word in the life of Jesus, it's not the final word in your life or my life either. His is a victory that is shared with everyone who repents and believes in him. If you're lost, the only one who can bring you to God is Jesus Christ. Not your works, not coming to church, not being baptized. Those are all good things, but they can't bring you to God. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And now, since he is seated victoriously at the right hand of the Father, all powers being made submit, uh, submissive and subjected to him, in our lives, we should never despair. We should never fear 
And we should never stop serving God because no matter what this world brings, we have victory in Jesus. And to me, as I was studying this this week more, more in depth, it seemed like such an important and timely reminder with the things going on in our world and even more specifically in our country. This world seems to just be unraveling at the seams. Our country seems to be becoming increasingly anti-Christian. That shouldn't surprise us. So many people are just filled with and fueled by hate. Just watch the news for five seconds and it's going to be hateful. It's going to be depressing. It's going to be a whole lot of suffering. But listen, let's show how separate we are from that. We're engulfed in a sea of hatred and suffering, but we can follow the words of Christ. Love love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. How often has Peter emphasized that during suffering, you just keep living holy and doing what's right, hoping that your enemies will even see that in your life and come to the knowledge of God as their Savior too. And so don't be surprised when more and more persecution, more and more opposition and oppression come upon people who claim Jesus. Don't be surprised when it becomes more and more difficult in our country to serve the Lord. Don't be shocked when there are risks and challenges and dangers because we live in a world that's filled with hatred. We live in a world who ultimately has rejected God. But no matter what happens in this world, Jesus Christ is sitting victoriously on heaven's throne. The only one who can fix this world is Jesus. And he will one day. He's coming back. And as we read in Philippians chapter 2 earlier in the services, Paul said, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. It will happen. Like it or not, one day you will confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You can take the opportunity that God's given you now to humbly repent before Him and trust Him as your Savior or you can reject Him. And when He returns, you'll cower in His presence regretting forever the decision you made to reject His salvation. But you will still bow and confess His Lordship If you're lost, I pray that you make the decision today to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. And if you have, in the world we're living in right now, be strengthened, be encouraged, and find some peace knowing that no matter what happens, we have victory in Jesus. Let's stand. bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. And we just thank you so much for the love 
and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you raised him from the grave victoriously, and we thank you for that victory that we share in him. Give us the courage to do what's right, Lord, even if it's hard, and even if it means suffering. But Lord, we'd rather suffer for doing what you have us to do than disobey your word. Give us the grace we need to live for you each day, Lord. We thank you so much for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. We pray you are encouraged by today's message from the word of God. This sermon audio is available for free on all major podcast formats, as well as our website at northbryantbaptist.org. Thank you for listening.